How Karlsruhe became the leading global marketplace for high-quality watches. Let's try it again. Fabian and Tim, take it away. Thanks for letting us fix the technical issues. How could it be different than when we do a talk um, about an uh, ecosystem in Germany that we Germans, who are definitely definitely known for good internet, don't have technical issues? Um, Tim. Uh, welcome to the stage. I'm very happy that we have the chance to chat a bit. Thanks for having me, Fabian. Uh, yeah, so so we, we are specialized in mechanical things, so maybe that was the reason why I'm having trouble with electronics. Happens. Um, I want to give a brief introduction um, about you before I go into the questions. I think there's a lot of um, interesting stuff to stay to say and um, First of all, um, you're the CEO of uh, Chrono24. It's it's different to to speak or to say the name in English. I'm always used to to the German word. But uh, you took over the business early stage in uh, 2010. Um, you had the idea already, um, but you took over the brand and the company of a different team instead of uh, competing as your as a founding team yourself. Chrono24 is now the world's largest marketplace for luxury watches. What does this mean? This means the trade volume exceeds a billion dollars per year by far, I think. Um, I don't have the exact numbers, but you can comment or not comment uh, if you want in a second. That means a few hundred thousand sellers are offering their watches. This includes private and professional sellers. So a lot of traffic on there for luxury products. And um, yeah, so we can see... Uh, we have a market leader, a world uh, market leader in Karlsruhe in Germany for a product that a lot of people don't even know is that huge of a thing. Can you give us a brief perspective on how large is the luxury watch market overall, just that people or every listener and viewer can imagine what's happening in this segment? Yeah, so... Um... The market is right now around 50 billion euro worldwide. And this is uh, new luxury watches at around 35 billion euro. And uh, pre-owned luxury watches is around 15 uh, billion euro. Um, and we're not counting here fashion watches or any um, 50 euro watches. So this is just the luxury segment. And last year, um, we uh, did around 2 billion euro um, uh, in that market in transaction volume uh, through Chrono24. And we're not only a global market leader, we are the market leader in almost all countries um, except the United States where eBay is a little bit ahead of us and uh, China where we have not really tried to get into. So it's probably one of the very few German tech companies um, or, or, or consumer-oriented tech companies um, with such a dominant market position on a global scale. I mentioned that you took over the business in 2010 instead of competing with the uh, Chrono24 team. Can you take us back to 2009 when you were thinking about founding the competitor because you researched the idea and then later on you found a Chrono24 and why you didn't found a competitor but um, tried to or took over Chrono24 back then? This was actually a pretty close uh, and not an easy decision. 
whether we wanted to compete, compete against Chrono24 or um, buy out um, the previous owners. Um, maybe a little bit before, this was more than 2007, 2008, um, how did I come up with the idea? Um, I've spent around 10 years before in marketplaces um, and also as an entrepreneur. So first of all, I wanted to bring three passions together. One is a passion for entrepreneurship. I always had a very strong belief in marketplaces and a personal love for luxury watches. Um, and I want to be very honest, in my very first uh, entrepreneurial journey, um, I had a big failure. Um, I started a marketplace for gifts, which was a great learning experience. Um, it was actually um, an idea that we took from Scott Galloway that a lot of people might know, uh, who did the very same thing in the US. Uh, and he failed in the US and we failed in Germany. Um, and, uh, and then I tried a second time with a second business, which wasn't a failure, but, but it also wasn't a huge success. So I thought next time um, I want to do something that's extraordinarily fun, even though it might not be economically successful. So that was the original concept. Do something that I will truly love and truly like, even though it might be financially not super attractive. So that was the original idea. And um, that idea ended up being a marketplace for luxury watches. And when I researched the global market, I found Chrono24, which luckily was just um, after global research, just a 30 minute car drive away from my home back then. Um, and I, we met the people. Um, so the good news is they were willing to sell. The bad news was um, we totally did not agree on the price and we negotiated for a year. Um, and ultimately it was rather my co-founder who pushed me. I, I pushed him into the category of luxury watches. He was had a stronger opinion on that the acquisition is probably a better way to get into the category than competing against them. Um, we were ready to compete. We had investors lined up behind us. We had a brand name, which was timepieces.com. Um, but I think the ultimate decision was the value that we saw in not having Chrono24 as a competitor. So we, uh, we had a hard discussion on the prices, on, on the price that we would pay for the business. But seeing the benefit of being quite alone uh, besides eBay and that category was the, the ultimate driving force. So... You mentioned in different interviews that I um, uh, obviously uh, researched about um, that it took over a year to to come to the end that you took over Chrono24, that you paid a 10 times multiple. And in the end, you never really looked back and said, oh, it was a fault. What, what let's say, benefits or what was the real value of um, buying Chrono24? So instead of building it yourself, was it just that it, they are not the competitors or what was um, aligned with that? I think there are a few things. So I, I always say the most critical part in starting your own business. And since then I've also acted as, a, as an investor and I've maybe invested in 15 or 20 businesses and I've seen a lot of ideas and I've done a few myself. 
I think the two most critical parts is finding the right team. And then second, um, getting a product market fit. And I mean, the team, I had the team, so I was very convinced that this was a great team and we have been working together. The three of us had been working together for 10 years at the time. So I knew that the team is fantastic, very complimentary, uh, great guys, good cultural fit, strong alignment in the future and very different um, skill set. So this was, was not an issue for me, I think. And then second is product market fit and, and, and paying, even though it felt like a lot of money and, and having the product market fit checked um, felt is, is, is worth the money. Uh, and then especially in our category where we are truly in a, on a global scale in a winner takes it all market. Um, you just want to be that winner, even though it costs a lot of money. Um, it is very hard um, if you're number two or even number three um, to push you to, to become number one. But once you are number one, um, it's, uh, it's a very easily defendable market position um, if you don't do things wrong. Um, our, one of our shareholders always calls these kind of businesses ham sandwich businesses. Um, that can even run by a ham sandwich and often not even be destroyed, <laughs> even though the CEO is a ham sandwich. So I don't know if this is a, if, if this is a, a reference to the strengths of the founders, um, but uh, I, I think it's uh, it's a comment on the strengths of marketplace businesses. I think we don't want to find examples that might be run by by these kind of people. Um, you mentioned that you focused on being uh, profitable very early because it was more. Um, or more relevant than just finding the next exit potential or the next IPO potential. There are rumors that you're um, ahead of uh, of uh, this now and maybe change your mind a bit, but you don't, you won't, and you don't have to comment it right now. Everybody can Google it by him or herself. Um, still, you focus on profitability a lot. And um, at some point you let in VCs. How does this work? Because, What, or the question that I ask myself, and I think um, a lot of people out there that um, put VCs in a corner where it's about, oh, you just grow and you don't have to look after profitability. So what happened to your profitability after you let VCs into the deal and into the company? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to see my, my own history. I, I had run two marketplace businesses before uh, for 10 years and... Um, in these 10 years, I had a single profitable quarter. And that was the business where I sold my, my second business. So um, um, uh, one out of 48 quarters were just negative and I just didn't want to do it anymore. I just wanted to make money um, and, and feel safe. And so we, um, when we started Cron24, we, we had a strong idea on, on the culture um, we wanted to remain really, really small. So the first people we hired, we promised them that this will be a 15-people business max. But it will be super cool. Only the very best and, and coolest people would join us and we would have a lot of fun and create some, something extraordinary, but not something that is necessarily super big and, uh, and, and, uh, and as global as we are today. Um, and some, there are still quite a lot of people of this initial 15 on board that remind me from time to time uh, that this is a promise that I broke. 
And then me and my founding partners broke that promise. Today, by the way, we are close to 500 in our entire group. Um, and so, I mean, it took us a little bit to become profitable. I think maybe 12 months. And then the business was very profitable. And it felt great. And for the first time, I really felt having um, an asset and not just trying to build a business and sell it, but I really felt having an extraordinary business with a, with a true value. And we were thinking about dividend payments uh, and that, was, that felt great. On the other hand, um, we were at least twice a year sitting in strategy out uh, uh, meetings where we would always say, hey guys, we should do this and we should do that. We, we should open an office in Asia. We should open an office in the US. We should heavily invest in content. We should, we should heavily invest in marketing. We didn't do all of that. And then we thought it might be a mistake um, to, not super, to not grow super aggressively. And then um, four years down the road, after heavily investing in a very solid um, technology team, um, corporate culture, we ultimately decided to change the gears and grow the business. But looking back, I mean, we were in a lucky situation to not feeling the cold breath of a competitor in my neck. So we had the time to build a very strong fundamental um, fundament for, for our business. And I think looking back, I think this was very, very important. And, and part of the current leadership team has already been on board at the time. Um, so. Um, we have very strong Kununu ratings. Uh, we have very strong corporate culture. And even now we are 500 people and a lot of people weren't there. I think a lot of our employees still feel and can experience the cultural setting that we set in these early years. Um, for example, we, when we hired people and we couldn't find the great fit from a skill set, from an attitude, cultural fit, we would leave... Um, vacancies open for, for 12 months. Um, and looking back, I think this truly, truly paid off looking what we have now and how sustainable the business is, uh, is today. But then when we decided, hey, we need to accelerate or we want to accelerate, this is too much on the table that we would just leave um, if we don't um, go that route. Um, it was very, very easy to raise capital in 2014 or 2015. Uh, most of the VCs that we talked to wanted to invest. And this was another big advantage that at the time, we could pretty much pick any investor that we wanted. And since the business was profitable and we wanted to accelerate, but we didn't want to push the gas too hard. So we didn't want to overheat. Um, so we didn't even take a lot of money um, onto our own balance sheet. Um, but another thing we did um, that all founding shareholders and also the founding investors sold a certain amount of their shares. And I think this was the most important part of bringing in capital. It was not having the capital. It was a different mindset. Um, after having sold a small part, it was less than 25% of the business, um, and also taking a little bit of money off the table. I mean, we, we didn't pay us high salaries. We, we, we were not having any money at the time. Um, but, but that changed our mindset. Um, it de-risked ourselves. And we were willing to take 
much more risks within the business. And that really helped. And after doing that, we really started to accelerate. We, we, um, we grew from 50 people to now 500 people uh, in not such a long period of time. We also brought in a very experienced co-CEO that runs the business together with me. Um, the guy that has um, built um, as a long-term CEO TeamViewer, which, which is one of the biggest German tech success successes. It's a $10 billion uh, market cap, um, more or less, uh, uh, right now. And, and, and Holger um, stepped in four years ago, five years ago, and is now running Chrono24 alongside with me. Um, and it was very, very helpful to have somebody like him on board who has traveled that journey of fast growth before, um, as a as a co-pilot you definitely should do keynotes uh, i had like two or three sub questions that i wanted to add on and you all you answered them all so um, um at some point i will run out of questions but um that's 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 fair enough um now what you mentioned is is uh, pretty interesting to um observe this and um when it comes to culture um what would you say are the top, I don't like the top two, top three thing stuff, but what are things that are really, really important to you that you implemented very early on to really ensure that people fit together? Because you said you worked with some of them before, you wanted to have the coolest people and you promised the 15 people are a perfect team in the end. So how were you looking for the first 15? Because that I think ensures that the growth afterwards was definitely um, looked out at the, at, with some principles to help, that helped to keep up the culture. I mean, most of these um, early 15, uh, let's, let's call, them, call them that, um, came out of our own network. And having a strong network, I think, is a huge, huge plus for a founder. So um, when, when I mean, when someone in the audience wants to start his or her own business, um, bringing together a team of, in a way, like-minded people, but on the other hand, very complementary skills. So, I mean, strong sales and maybe strong extroverts are often, when they, when they look at their friends and the people they know, um, are other maybe rather sales-oriented extroverts. And... Um, I mean, extrovert salespeople can probably do a great job, but um, they also need strong tech, which is sometimes more um, um, a super analytical introvert. Um, and maybe these people don't find that easily together um, uh, in life. So I think it's a huge benefit if, if, if you have some kind of professional experience in, in, uh, in an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial environment where you meet these people and can bring in uh, people that share the same vision, have the same long-term goals, uh, similar values, but a very different skill set that together brings all the relevant skills um, to build a great company. And at the beginning, we brought in people um, from our own network that, that we knew. And I, one of the key philosophies of hiring was hire for attitude, train for skill. So we didn't look for skills. We weren't impressed by great CVs. We were not impressed by great experiences and skills. We were impressed 
by attitude. I mean, obviously, certain skills just needed to be there. We, we did not want to train somebody to, to develop Java. Um, and if we wanted to have an Italian sales guy, um, we did not want to teach somebody Italian. But more or less, um, we, we didn't care about school and university grades, skills, but the right attitude. And I think this was probably one of the key elements of our cultural success. Um, and um, we wanted to bring in people, we tried to bring in people with a very strong internal motivation. So for example, at Chrono24, not, not a single person, uh, not even in sales, not even in China and in our Hong Kong office or in the US office, but this is pretty standard, we're not paying any variable comp. So nobody gets a bonus for, um, um, for, um, uh, for what they do. This does not mean that we don't pay high salaries, but we just believe in paying fixed salaries um, for the work they do, um, may maybe higher than the fixed salaries in other companies, but they don't get bonuses because we don't want to pay people um, for doing certain jobs. Um, we want people with a strong internal motivation. And you feel that when you go through other company, you feel there's a very strong motivation, a strong um, camaraderie, um, and I think the troops are pretty aligned in our business. And this is also something I can truly recommend to, um, to other founders, um, to bring in the right people with the right uh, motivation. I can uh, totally relate, but from a different perspective, I'm currently at the moment making the mistake of uh, trying to hire for skill because I need something um, special for building a media company around the podcast instead of bringing with me the time and uh, yeah, the time to develop the people. But uh, that's uh, because I have one last question. We, we have to skip the discussion about this and um, I will definitely take your advice to um, hire for attitude over skill and uh, let them develop the skills. But um, culture and team is only one part of the medal. You definitely have to, or one part of the success formula, you definitely have to have a great product and to just to go back and give some perspective. Your average listing is around six to 7,000 euros, I think. And um, therefore you need to have a lot of trust with the um, with the customer and uh, the end-to-end -end, uh, user. So what makes a perfect customer experience and a perfect product for you? Just that we can um, imagine how you go into such a market of luxury watches where people definitely have to trust you way more than just paying $10 on an e-commerce site. I mean, discussing what's the perfect product and the perfect customer experience is probably another hour of discussion here. Um, trust is, in our context, probably the most relevant value. And I'm not even saying that um, everybody worldwide is feeling the level of trust that they should have. And, and uh, so, so this is something we, we still have quite a journey to go. Uh, which we also see as, a, as, as quite a potential, potential for growth. Um, what we did, I think, pretty good in, in the last 10 years, and this is some, something that also our previous owners, which were just, by the way, two guys running Chrono24 as a side business, did the seven years before, is that they had very applied very strict rules. So... They were never looking for the short-term revenue and, and long-term success. Um, they were always having a long-term view in mind. And this is something that we also share. So if, if, if we don't have 
a trustful seller on the platform, we'd rather kick them out uh, and, and rather let them go um, because we have a strong feeling that um, a single negative experience uh, does not even outweigh 10 positive experience. So to just make sure that, uh, that there's no negative experience um, and for every negative, there's at least 20, 30 positive experiences. Um, and this is not easy. I mean, we all have revenue targets and sometimes uh, it's just quite easy to, to jump on a, on, a, on a quick revenue where it might make more sense um, to look in the long term. But in general, I think um, we always set a very good balance of what needs to be done right now, what, what, what is the revenue that we generate right now, uh, and what is the long-term potential. It's the same thing with pricing. So um, pricing is a very, very complex issue. So how expensive is a product? Um, and this is also always a question on how fast do you want to grow? What is your long-term goal? What is your short-term goal? Um, my, my feeling is that a lot of companies are not pricing right. Too expensive, maybe too cheap. Um, I think this is, I mean, pricing is, is definitely also a very important part of the product and, and, and something that I think a lot of people should focus more on. I have to nicely cut you off at that point, but that's definitely something people should think about when they um, are running their own company. How do I price correctly and uh, put a lot of time into researching, um, testing, and uh, finding the right price point. Um, Tim, it was a pleasure to talk to you here at Start uh, Summit. And I'm very happy to, um, or for everyone who wants to connect with you, um, I recommend checking out uh, Chrono24 if you want a new luxury watch or um, checking out uh, Tim's LinkedIn if you have some follow-up questions. Thank you very much for the whole Start team for having us. Um, enjoy your conference and um, best regards from Berlin and uh, Karlsruhe, I think. Thanks for having me, Fabian. Uh, was, was a pleasure. And uh, by the way, we're not only here for selling watches. We also have a great uh, uh, recruiting uh, job offer site. So uh, knowing that a lot of uh, maybe maybe students are, are joining here, uh, we're always happy to uh, to meet interesting candidates. Fair enough. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tim, I so much agree. Hire for attitude, train for skills. Fabian, great interview. Coming up next, digital transformation of quality journalism. And this is right up my street. We'll be back in 30 seconds. So grab a quick drink and come right back. Start Summit 21. <laughs>